Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be looking at Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. We are continuing our journey through the book of Romans, and today we find ourselves in chapter 10. So you can turn there in your Bibles, Romans chapter 10, about verse 8. That's where we left off. In our last study, we spent quite a bit of time looking at verses 6 and 7, which are extremely interesting verses. In verses 5 through 7, Paul was contrasting the difficulty of attaining righteousness through obedience to the law versus obtaining righteousness through faith. Let's read those verses again because they lead right into the passage today uh, that we'll be looking at, um, which begins in in verse 8. So first we'll read Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. Quote, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So the contrast that Paul sets up here is that, well, if you're going to try to obtain righteousness through the law, then that means you're going to have to obey the entire law in order to live. That's what he means by his quote there in verse 5, where he says, the person who does these things will live by them. And as any of us who have lived any amount of time has found out, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's that we fail when we try to live by the law. We stumble into sin, and once we do that, then poof, it's, it's all over as far as gaining righteousness through the law. So such a righteousness under the law becomes an impossible feat, a feat akin to, say, something like we ourselves climbing up to heaven by our own strength. And, and that's what Paul compares it to in verses 6 and 7. The point of verses 6 and 7, as we talked about in our last study, the point of those verses is that to attain the righteousness by faith does not require such an impossible feat. Let's read those verses again, uh, verses 6 and 7. Quote, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Unquote. In other words, when contemplating gaining the righteousness by faith, you don't have to prepare and then plan on doing some impossible feat. You, you don't have to try and figure out how to, say, ascend to heaven on your own to bring Christ down, or how to descend into the depths on your own to bring Christ up from the dead. God did all of those things for us. God sent Christ into the world so that through Christ's sacrifice, he would atone for our sins so that we could be clothed with Christ's righteousness. And then God himself raised Jesus from the dead in order to confirm to us that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to atone for our sins. So, in verses 6 and 7, Paul is telling us the things that we don't have to do in order to obtain righteousness by faith. In verse 8, Paul states what we do have to do in order to obtain the righteousness by faith. So, let's read verses 
8 through 13, where Paul speaks in a positive way, telling us exactly what we have to do in order to attain righteousness by faith. Here Paul is personifying this righteousness by faith, speaking as if this righteousness is speaking directly to us, telling us exactly how to obtain it. So we'll be reading Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Quote, But what does the righteousness that is by faith say? The word is near you. It is in your heart and in your mouth. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." In this passage, first Paul tells us in verse 8 how accessible righteousness or justification through faith is. It's quite accessible. Accessible to anyone, in fact. You don't have to plan some long journey to find it. You don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to go on some pilgrimage to speak to some guru somewhere in a far-off land. You don't have to figure out some way to ascend into heaven to go looking for it. God himself is the one who sent Christ down from heaven, and God himself is the one who raised Christ from the dead. We don't have to go on some superhuman trek to do these things in order to gain our salvation, because God himself did these things. On the contrary, our salvation is near us. It's very near you, as Paul says. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That's how close it is. No need to go searching for it. It's right there, available to anyone. And really, that's so fantastic. The salvation through Christ is available to anyone and everyone. It's available to a five-year-old kid who doesn't have the means or ability to go anywhere to find it. It's available to a a frail 95-year-old man or woman who no longer has the physical ability to go and find it. It's available to the poorest of the poor and to the richest of the rich, equally and fairly available to all. You don't need any special abilities to obtain it. It's in your mouth and in your heart, very near you. And in verse 9, we find the message concerning faith that Paul is proclaiming. Here it is. Are you ready for it? Here we go. Quote, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Unquote. This is quite a significant verse, giving us, so it seems, a formula, really, of how we can be saved. Declare or confess or profess, as it's also translated, and believe. Simple as that. Declare and believe, and you're saved. It's really an amazing verse in that way. And I think it might be deceptively simple. There's really a lot packed into it. I think in order to fully understand what Paul is saying, we really need to look at four things from this verse and figure out what exactly they mean. Here are the four things. One, what is the meaning of believing in one's heart? Two, what's the significance of God raising Christ from the dead? Three, what is meant by declaring with your mouth? And four, what's the scope of declaring Jesus as Lord? 
I think it's important that we dive into all of these subjects in order to truly understand what Paul is saying here. And I think it's important that we do that because, as I said, Paul seems to be giving us a formula as to how we can be saved. And given that, uh, what could be more important than to fully understand what he's saying here? So let's do it. Let's dig into these questions. The root of everything that Paul is saying, I think, is the phrase, believe in your heart. So let's look at that first. From a belief in one's heart, everything else springs. You can't sincerely confess Christ as Lord if you don't already believe it to be so in your heart. Otherwise, the confession is meaningless, just mere words, just babbling for the sake of babbling. In Western culture, when we refer to matters of the heart, when we use the heart as a symbol like that, we're referring to the heart as the seat of our affections, you know, know, whatever, be my valentine and all that. But the biblical meaning of the heart is wider ranging. The heart does not just represent the seat and center of affections, but it represents the entire soul, the entire inner being. And so when Paul says, believe in your heart, he's saying, believe with your entire inner being. It's a belief through and through. It's not just an intellectual belief. It's not just a belief merely of the understanding, not just, yeah, I get it, I understand. No, it goes beyond that. It's it's a sincere faith reaching the depths of our souls, and as such, a faith that influences our entire life. A belief in one's heart, according to the biblical use of the word heart, is a faith that consumes our entire inner being, every corner of the soul, and so our whole lives are wrapped up with this faith. And by the way, note that we're not saved by mere outward actions. That's one of the distinctions that Paul is making here. We're not saved by some amazing feat that we can do, such as to find a way to ascend up to heaven or into the depths. Or moreover, we're not saved by a mere physical confession of Jesus as Lord. Reciting some rote phrase that someone else penned is not enough to save us. That's just mere lip service. No, Paul is pointing out that the state of the heart is what's important. And the suggestion by the structure of what Paul is saying, by the parallel statements in this verse, is that the confession of Jesus as Lord is strongly tied to, and I would say springs out of, the strong belief, the strong faith that we have, which reaches into our inner being. And so that's the meaning of the phrase, believing in one's heart. Next, we'll look at the object of this faith, which is, the significance of God raising Christ from the dead. Just as Paul states that you are to believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead. Paul's doing some literary things here with this statement. In the Christian faith, the significance of the resurrection of Christ is that by raising Christ from the dead, God the Father is communicating to us that he approved and sanctioned everything that Christ did here on earth. That's the significance of the resurrection of Christ. It wasn't just meant to be a miraculous display of God's power, though though it was that. And it wasn't just meant to be a demonstration that there is life beyond this earth, though it was that as well. The significance of the resurrection of Christ goes beyond these things and demonstrates to us that God did indeed send Jesus to earth 
and that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And more importantly, with respect to speaking of salvation, Christ succeeded in his mission to save us from our sins. In other words, Christ's sacrifice of atonement is sufficient to forgive us from all of our sins. By raising Christ from the dead, God is demonstrating to us that everything that Jesus did here on earth, from his teachings to the example that he set, to his own declaration of being one with the Father, to suffering and the sacrifice of himself on our behalf, all of these things were sanctioned and approved by God. That's the significance of the resurrection of Christ. And so, when you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, that's what you're believing. You're not just believing that God has this life-giving power to raise Christ, though that's part of your faith. You're also believing that the teachings of Jesus are true, and that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and that his sacrifice is sufficient to save us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. A belief in the resurrection of Christ is a belief that God approved everything that Christ did here on earth. Well, you might ask, why didn't Paul say all of that? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, he does say all of that throughout the book of Romans. He's, he's laying all of this stuff out. But here, in order to make an artistic and a brief and really memorizable summary of all this, he states the matter succinctly and beautifully. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a beautiful and brief summary of our saving faith. And as I said, it's a verse, you know, that maybe all of you should memorize. It's well worth the effort. And as you memorize it and recite it from memorization, you should ponder and meditate on all that it means, the sorts of things that we're talking about here today. What does faith in one's heart mean? And what is the significance that God raised Christ from the dead? And why is it necessary that I confess with my mouth? And what is the full scope of confessing that Jesus is my Lord? And as you do that, as you memorize this verse and ponder it and meditate on it, I think you'll find through the Holy Spirit that this verse has an incredible amount of depth to it. It's a deceptively simple-sounding terse summary of our saving faith. There's a lot here, as I hope I'm able to point out to you today. By the way, one more thing about this phrase that God raised Christ from the dead. There's some literary things going on here too. In fact, there's a lot of literary things going on here in this passage as a whole. Reaching back to the verses that we looked at last week and understanding the literary devices at work here may answer some questions that you might have about why Paul words things the way he does. So let's take a quick aside to discuss the literary things that are going on in this passage because I you know I think it helps to understand better the emphases that Paul has in these verses by understanding uh, what he's doing from a literary standpoint. First, there's some parallelism going on. We've talked about that literary device before. It's where parallel statements are used in order to compare and contrast concepts and ideas. Sometimes the parallel statements build on each other in order to add nuances of meaning to the concept being described. Sometimes the parallel statements contrast each other in order to aid in understanding the concepts. 
In this passage, we have multiple parallel statements as well as a what's called a chiastic structure, and I'll talk about that, uh, what that is in a second. First, there's a somewhat hard-to-see parallelism between verse 9 and verses 6 and 7. You can start to see the parallelism by noticing that both verses refer to Christ's resurrection. Let's read verses 6 and 7 to remind us what they say. Recall that verses 6 and 7 are part of Paul's argument that the justification by faith is much more accessible than justification under the law was. Here in verses 6 and 7, Paul is saying that you don't need to perform some great feat in order to be justified by faith. Here again is what he says, uh, Romans 10, verses 6 and 7, quote, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, unquote. Paul's point was that to be justified by faith, we don't need to do some fantastic feat like ascending up to heaven ourselves to bring Christ down or descending into the deep to ourselves raise Christ from the dead. So in verse 9, Paul is actually referring back to verses 6 and 7. That's easy to see in the second half of verse 9 where Paul references belief that God raised Christ from the dead. So in verse 9, if you look at it, It's parallel to verses 6 and 7 in that verse 9 contrasts the accessibility of justification by faith versus performing some insane feat in order to gain righteousness. As I said, we don't have to go up into heaven to bring Christ down. We just need to confess Jesus as Lord, which is really saying that Christ did come down to heaven on his own. And we confess Christ as Lord because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who who came down from heaven. So understanding this uh, helps us see the tie between verse 9 and verse 6. Then as we pointed out, verse 7 is clearly parallel to the second half of verse 9, where verse 7 says, we don't have to descend into the deep in order to raise Christ from the dead. We just need to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. So for literary reasons, to compose this great work of art that the book of Romans is, Paul gives us this formula of sorts as to how we can be saved, and he ties it in a literary way to his citations of verses from the Old Testament that that we read in verses 6 and 7. And this actually answers a question that comes up with regard to verse 9. Why does Paul limit the statement of faith to the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Why doesn't Paul also mention the atoning sacrifice of Christ as he does in Romans chapter 3 when he summarizes the gospel? In Romans 3, Paul tells us that we're justified by faith in Christ's atoning sacrifices. Here, we're told that we're saved by faith in the resurrection of Christ. So this is explained here by these literary structures that Paul has set up. Paul focuses on the resurrection of Christ in order to tie it to what he said in verses 6 and 7. So that's the more subtle parallelism found in this passage, the parallel between verse 9 and verses 6 and 7. And the reference to Christ coming from heaven is parallel with Christ as Lord, and then the reference in both passages to the resurrection of Christ is parallel. There are more obvious parallelisms with the motifs of mouth and heart. With those motifs, we can see the device of parallelism, but also the device of 
chiastic structure, which I'll explain in a second. These literary devices run from verse 8 all the way to verse 13. Let's look at first uh, the initial parallelism. In verse 8, Paul cites a verse from the Old Testament which says, The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. And then in verse 9, Paul gives us the formula for salvation in terms of confessing with your mouth and then believing in your heart. The parallelism here should be clear to all of us because of the repeated motifs of mouth and heart. By the way, recognizing the parallelism here helps us to answer a question that often comes up about verse 9. Many people, when they read verse 9, they wonder why Paul talks about confession first and then belief in one's heart. I think all of us agree, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, I think we would all agree that Meaningful confession only comes after a true faith in one's heart. So why does Paul mention the confession part first? So we see the answer to this with the parallelism. In verse 9, Paul's purpose is not to give us the time order of things, but his purpose is to tie the formula for our salvation to the verse that he just cited from the Old Testament. The Old Testament passage says, it's in your mouth and in your heart. And so in verse 9, Paul says, First, confess with your mouth, and then he says to believe in your heart. And this points out something else. In order to properly interpret the Bible, we do need to understand and take into account the literary devices being used. And by the way, there are literary devices being used all over the place in the Bible. Someone studying the Bible, a pastor, a teacher, or just you at home, may look at verse 9 and be puzzled by it. They'd say, why does Paul say that confession comes first and then faith. They're thinking that Paul is stating these things in time order. But as we see, Paul's not stating stuff in time order in these verses. Rather, in verse 9, he gives us that order of things so that verse 9 would be parallel with the verse he cited from the Old Testament, which says it's in your mouth and in your heart. Also, what's really neat is that Paul continues with this literary device and using the mouth and heart motifs all the way through to verse 13. But he adds a bit of a twist in verse 10, which introduces us to another literary device often found in the Bible, and that is the chiastic structure. Chiastic structures are similar to parallelisms, except they take the form of something like, you know, A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. They reverse the order of things. They have parallelisms where the outer you know, verses or statements are parallel to each other. And then as you go inward, one step inward, the one step inward you know, statements are parallel to each other. And then the statements more inward are parallel to each other. So the structure is more like A, B, C, D, you know, D, C, B, A, where the A's would be parallel, the B's would be parallel C's, and the D's going in towards the middle. It's kind of hard to explain just verbally. Um, If you are just listening to this podcast without the uh, video version, uh, it's a little more difficult. uh, In the video version, which is available on YouTube or at the scripturestudies.com website, there's a slide presentation that goes with the (laughs) uh, verbal presentation that the you know, has pictures of all this and color-coded, things color-coded in, in the citations from the text, etc. So it's easier to follow, so I encourage you to look that up, but I'll try my best to explain it. 
In verses 8 through 13, we, we have kind of a structure, something like A, B, A prime, B prime, B double prime, A double prime, B triple prime, A triple prime. So let me try to explain it. Um, and let me show you it so it's on the slide presentation. This is found, the center of it is found in verses 9 and 10, where you have the motifs of mouth and heart in verse 9, and then they're repeated in verse 10, but they're, they're in reverse order. And that sets up the chiastic structure, the center of the chiastic structure. Paul says in verse 9, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and then in verse 10 he says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So notice how he changes the order of heart and mouth in, in those verses. Verse 9 has mouth and then heart. Verse 10 has heart and then mouth. And that signals for us this chiastic structure where you have Th things reversing order as they go out, and things are parallel in reverse order going in from going out. Um, with the color coding on the slide, you can see this, and we can easily see the switcheroo that Paul pulls on us between verses 9 and 10. He reverses things. He mentions um, in verse 9, as I said, mouth and then heart, and in verse 10, heart and then mouth. And as I said, this signals for us that there is a chiastic structure that Paul is developing here. And so when you see that sort of thing, you can try to, um, tr try to find more parallel statements as you, as you go out from the center and, and you, you know, kind of explore, well, you know, how, how big is this chiastic structure? I mean, if, if there's a structure like A, B, C, D, E, E, D, C, B, A, you'll probably first notice the middle part, the D-E-E-D, -E -E -D, you know, just like we did. We noticed the middle part of the chiastic structure because they're right next to each other, right? It's kind of the initial switcheroo, as I call it. And then once you notice the middle switcheroo, you can expand your analysis and see if there is more to the chiastic structure. So let's explain our analysis. Is there more to this chiastic structure than just verses 9 and 10? Well, let's widen the net. Do the preceding and following verses talk, you know, uh, about the heart and mouth motif, or, or are they parallel with each other in any way? Let's look at verse 8. And verse 8 says this, But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Wow. So there you go. Uh, verse 8 does uh, significantly order mouth and heart at the same order as it has it in verse 9. We'll see if there's a switcheroo going to the, the verses after verse 9 and 10. And see if they can be parallel to the statements in verse 8. Well, verse 11 says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Well, so this one isn't as clear. It doesn't mention the word heart, but he's mentioning belief. And remember, belief in one's heart was, you know, part of this formula that, that Paul gave. So this a citation of the scripture, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, is parallel to the in your heart section in verse 8. Uh, and so that strengthens our and widens our chiastic structure. And what, well, what comes next is, is, next? is there something about in your mouth? Because before the in your heart in verse 8, there's the statement, 
The word is near you. It is in your mouth. So let's see if we move on after verse 11 and see if there's something concerning, you know, your mouth. So let's keep looking. Verse 12. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Wow, call. That's something with your mouth. And then we continue to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there you go. It doesn't say specifically the mouth, but it's talking about an action with the mouth. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, so, you know, that fits in, you know, the mouth category, just like, you know, believing, uh, Paul said, if you believe in your heart, and then he had parallel with the in your heart from verse eight, he had this verse in verse 11, talking about the actions of the heart, believing in your heart. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So, so in 12 and 13, we have the actions of the mouth spoken of. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that sets up, if you look at the whole thing, a, a very nice chiastic structure going from verse eight through verse 13. You have verse eight, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That's parallel to verses 11 through 13, where in 11, he talks about believing, which is tied to the heart. And then in verse 12 and 13, he talks about calling, which is an action of the, of the mouth at the beginning of verse eight. And then in the center of the whole thing, you have verses nine and 10, where it's clearer, where you have it, the, the phrase is, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then moving on to verse 10, for as with your heart you believe and are justified in your mouth, you profess and are saved. So you have this whole chiastic structure, A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, which is very beautiful from a literary point of view. And as I said, <laughs> I encourage you to pick up the slides and maybe look through them. They're color-coded with these things, so it's easier to see the, uh, the structure there. I did try my best to uh, explain it. I hope it was adequate for you, you know, on the freeway. I hope you're not, you know, um, going crazy on the freeway or something, just listening to this, trying to figure out. Yeah, pay attention to the traffic. Okay. Anyway, what's really amazing in my mind, and, and to me this kind of proves that Paul had this chiastic structure in mind when he wrote it. What's amazing is that in verse 11 and then verses 12 and 13, Paul cites two Old Testament verses. One of them relates to belief in the heart, as we said, verse 11 saying, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And then the one that relates to confession with the mouth, verse 13 saying, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul orders these verses in such a way to preserve the chiastic structure. You know, he does the switcheroo and reverses the order of things, which is, you know, just beautiful from a literary point of view. To me, as someone who loves literature and, and loves poetry, this is really quite beautiful. It shows me that the book of Romans, in addition to be being an amazing book of content, which summarizes for us all of the major doctrines of the Christian faith. In addition to that, the book of Romans is also a great work of literature, a great work of art as well, a beautifully written work of art. Let's look at another chiastic structure to, just to learn how the structure can affect 
our understanding of a passage and maybe lead to a deeper understanding of a passage. One, I guess, rule, or it's a general rule, um, kind of a loose rule, I would say, of chiastic structures is that the emphasis of the passage is in the center of the structure. So we saw in our passage in Romans chapter 10 that the middle of the chiastic structure is what? Oh, oh my goodness. It's just what we said before. The emphasis is belief in one's heart. That's the middle of the chiastic structure. Let's read it again. The middle of this chiastic structure is, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. So, um, you know, fitting with the chiastic structure kind of rules, that the center is the emphasis, it makes sense to us. The emphasis of all this is a true belief in one's heart. Um, and, and intuitive, we thought that that was the case when we started talking about it. We thought, well, you know, why didn't Paul start with talk about belief in one's heart? But that's the reason. He's making this chiastic structure, and that culture, that literary device, the emphasis comes in the middle. And so that's why it, the belief in one's heart was saved for that, the middle of that chiastic structure. But we were thrown a bit because we were reading the passage initially like we would be reading English literature, which where usually the emphasis is first or, or even sometimes last. You know, and when we're reading, you know, English literature from an English literature point of view, we wondered why, well, why is Paul mentioning declaring with your mouth first rather than belief in one's heart, where intuitively we thought belief in one's heart was more important. And so in our English literature brains, it seemed to us that the emphasis was on declaring with your mouth. But from a Middle Eastern and Greek literature point of view, um, and that's where these literary devices come from, uh, from that point of view, the emphasis is where it should be, in the middle and on belief in one's heart. So clearly we see in Romans 10 that uh, this kind of loose rule holds that the emphasis is on what's at the center of the structure. Now, let's look at another chiastic structure from a different part of the Bible. Um, this is one that Jesus himself gave us. And it's a nice, simple example of chiastic structure that's uh, easy to lay out and easy to see the parallelisms. And let's see what we find with it. And let's see if it may change our interpretation of it, knowing that in the center is where the emphasis is in these chiastic structures. Let's read Matthew 6, 24. This is a verse I'm sure probably, hopefully all of you are familiar with. Many people are familiar with this very famous passage. Let's read it. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus is speaking here. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we all know this verse, or most of us know it, I hope. Uh, but did we re recognize the chiastic structure in it? Well, let's lay it out in chiastic structure form. And so I've done this on the slide in the video presentation. I'll try to explain it. So the the A part of the chiastic structure, the it's, it's an A, B, C, C, B, A structure. So the A's are no one can serve two masters, which is the first thing that Jesus says in that verse. And then that's parallel with the last thing he says, which is you cannot serve both God and money. Obviously, those, are, those two st statements are parallel. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. 
You cannot serve both God and money. Oh, beautiful. Uh, nice parallelism there. Very clear. Then the B part it talks about hate and despising. Either you will hate the one, that's the B, and just before the statement, you can't serve both God and money, there is, and despise the other. So either you will hate the one is parallel to despise the other. And then in the center, you have, and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one. So in the center, you have the two statements about loving what you're serving. And so in this uh, structure, so let's read it. Let's read the whole thing again, just to... No one can serve two masters, that's A. Either you will hate the one, that's B, and love the other, that's C, or you will be devoted to the one, that's C again, coming, starting to go outward. It's parallel to the statement, love the other. Then we have, and despise the other, that's B, which is parallel to the statement, either you will hate the one. And then finally you have, you cannot serve both God and money, which is parallel to the first thing that we said, which is no one can serve two masters. So you have this beautiful chiastic structure all in one verse, A, B, C, C, B, A. And the center of it tells us the emphasis. And in, in English literature, we're focused on the first statement. No one can serve two masters. So we're thinking, oh, that's the emphasis. Oh, you can't serve two masters. But according to the chiastic structure, the emphasis is on the center. Well, what's in the center here? Well, it's the statement, and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one. The center is about love and where our hearts are. And so Jesus is saying, with that emphasis, yeah, we can't serve two masters, but the emphasis is, is on what we love. And that's the important thing. Knowing this, knowing what we love, this will reveal to us whom or what we are really serving, right? And so knowing the chiastic structure, you know, gives us kind of a, something to meditate on about what the emphasis is here. The emphasis is, isn't on whether we have one master, two masters, three masters. The emphasis is on what we love determines who our master is, who our Lord is, whom or what we love. And, and that's the emphasis of what Jesus is saying here. And that's revealed to us by, the, by understanding the chiastic structure of what he's saying. So Jesus, by structuring his teaching in this way, is showing us what the emphasis is, as I said. And knowing the structure actually can affect how we interpret that verse and what we focus on when we meditate on that verse. Now, the reason I got off this tangent about literary devices, etc., is to point out to you and to show you how important it is that when interpreting a passage, it's important that you read the entire context of the passage. And... If you do have the knowledge, it's important that you understand the literary devices too, because the whole context and the whole structure can determine, you know, properly uh, interpreting a passage. For instance, back in Romans 10, if you, if you just took, you know, verse 9 and pulled it out of context and tried to interpret it on its own without the surrounding context, if you, if you did that, then you'd have all sorts of questions and, and you could invent all sorts of difficulties about it. Let's read it again. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So just taking that verse by itself, one of the first questions I would ask is why does Paul declare? Say to declare, confess first, and then believe second. And that's out of order in my mind. Well, as we saw, and when we looked at the surrounding context, we came to understand that Paul wasn't giving us the time order of things in verse 9, 
But he was giving us these things and showing us the emphasis of what he's saying by using this chiastic structure. The center telling us that the emphasis is on believing in your heart, just as we talked about before. That's the center of the whole structure. And then again, if you just take verse 9 out of context, you're, you're going to wonder why Paul speaks only of faith that God raised Jesus from the dead and not other aspects of our faith in Christ, such as faith that Christ's sacrifice atoned for our sins and faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, again, in context, we saw that Paul in verse 9 is pointing back to verses 6 and 7, which say that, you know, in order to obtain righteousness by faith, you don't have to go into heaven to bring Christ down. You just have to declare that Christ is Lord. And you don't have to go into the deep to bring Christ up from the dead. You just have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so Paul mentions only the resurrection aspect of our faith in Christ because he's tying this verse to the previous context that he set up in order to make this chiastic structure. So again, I hope I've convinced you of a couple of things. Um, One is how important it is to read and interpret the Bible verse in the context of everything surrounding that verse. And the other thing is that there are literary devices used in the Bible which affect how the writers of the Bible say things. So if an interpreter of the Bible doesn't take these literary and poetic and artistic devices into account, it could lead to errors in interpretation. Or to put it in a more positive way, I guess, understanding the literary devices being used can guide us to the correct interpretation and emphasis of a passage. Oh, and one more thing that I hope I've convinced you of is that the Bible is a deep, deep book, and you'll never really get to the bottom of it. There's always more to study. In fact, you could spend years studying the chiastic structures of various passages. They're all over the place, especially in the New Testament. And in that way, you could discover all sorts of new and cool things that the Holy Spirit is saying through them, and that's why we continue to study this book we, we know that we'll never get to the bottom of it. It's a deep and beautiful book, deep and beautiful enough to dig into and study every day of our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.